Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Indeed we do, and uh, we've got a cracking lineup for you this evening. Uh, there has been a constitutional court case going on at the moment, and Pit LaRue, the chief executive of Sakalicha, who's the man behind the Concord case, is going to be talking to us in just a couple of minutes. Pit, nice to have you on the program tonight. I see you nice and uh, clear in our virtual studio. How did things go today? You've been gearing up for this uh, 25th of May uh, occasion. Like, uh, it, was, uh, it was a four-year legal litigation process. It turned in the higher courts, then went to the Supreme Court of Appeal, where we were successful last year in setting aside those 2017 uh, procurement regulations. Um, I can tell you more about what that meant. But then today was the constitutional court case where we defended the Supreme Court of Appeal's uh, ruling against the uh, Minister of Finance now, of course, uh, Minister Tito Mbuweni, but four years ago it was Minister Pravin Gordon and uh, it was a day full of arguments. We had many amici uh, and also other parties joining the proceedings. So today was a fully packed constitutional court case. Yeah, we got lots to talk to you about that. I was surprised to see the EFF, the real EFF, were uh, were actually on your side. Uh, well, they joined as a as amicus curiae. So supposedly they they're there in the interest of justice as a friend of the court. And there was one other amicus curiae in the rule of law project of the Free Margaret Foundation. Now, I could say that the Rule of Law found a project made arguments that were supportive of the points we were to make, and they add very important additional points. The EFF, uh, we opposed their, uh, actually their admission as amicus curiae. They were, um, they were actually only repeating some of the minister's arguments and politicizing the case. So ah. they weren't very much of assistance. Okay, so that, that kind of squares that one up. But we'll talk about this in just a moment. Simon Lincoln-Reader joins us from London, our... Very popular columnist here on Biz News. Uh, and you're going to tell us about some of the conspiracy theories that are being projected by one Jacob Zuma. Yeah, um, I think, Alec, we could go back a bit further than we see that um, even before Zuma, conspiracies were uh, in the ANC kind of uh, even before Tabo Mbeki's time. And they followed Mbeki and they followed the exiles, and there's good reason for that. These guys were in Maputo and Lusaka and London and, you know, being sent bombs, looking over their shoulders. And Mbeki was the continuation of, um, of that suspicion. And, you know, in 2000, he started think, talking about the CIA and AIDS. And then in 2001, Steve Twitter came up with this report that implicated Matthews Pozer, Tokyo Sepoli, and Saul Ramaphosa right. in a, a plot to dispose of Mbeki. Um, and then the Browse Mole report came out, which was a sort of mixture between fact and fiction. Um, and, but then you can draw a line from, from Browse Mole all the way to 2015, where uh, Project Spiderweb came out. And that just indicated the depths which the ANC was prepared to entertain uh, distraction on the part of uh, emphasis on Zuma for what he was really up to because it was complete crap. The whole thing it implied that the Oppenheimers, the Rothschilds, and the Ruperts were in cahoots with Maria Ramos, and uh, it was just you could not believe it. But 
you know, this was something that he used in his defense. Well, we're going to be talking more about that complete crap. And uh, Stephen Nathan is our <laughs> guest co-host here on a Tuesday night. Stephen, uh, as far as the markets are concerned, things going on, uh, we, we see before we go into that, we're also going to have uh, Paul O'Sullivan later on the program tonight. He's been on EOH's case since 2017. And EOH is back in the Zondo Commission uh, after, well, they want more answers to that story. Just, just from an investor's point of view, I've been looking at EOH, and it's seven rand a share for a company that was, what, 188 rand at one point, and uh, very recently was nearly 10 rand a share. Uh, is it even worth looking at it, Stephen, uh, or are you trying to catch a falling knife there? Uh, it's a difficult question to answer because, as you say, um, you know, what are you buying? You know, when you're buying an IT business, you're buying a reputation. It's really important. Uh, and you know, what you know, what does this new business look like? I think that's what uh, everyone is trying to understand. And um, you know, can it can it uh, get on with business, or how much uh, does it have left over in terms of the, its capacity to keep on fighting all of these commission of inquiries? Because you know, if you're a client of, of, of EOHs, you don't want to be associated with that. And if you're a staff member, you also don't want to be associated with that. So it's a very difficult situation. And it's a business that has bought so many businesses, and clearly they haven't got their, their hands around it. So it's definitely a high-risk investment still at this stage. Well, we're going to be talking more about markets getting closer to the top of the hour. But just to remind you that you're with Biz News Power Hour. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, I hope that's been a nice little appetizer for you for what's coming up tonight. But let's kick off with Pit LaRue, uh, the chief executive of Sarkalicha. Pit, it's all to do with BEE procurement. And if you go back a little bit at what's been going on at uh, South African Airways, it's almost a, 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 a headline-grabbing implementation there, and we've seen it in many, many court papers, that what, what occurred at South African Airways, because it was a state-owned enterprise, was that they insisted that even though Shell, BP, and other uh, uh, suppliers um, were multinationals, that they had to put a BEE company in between. In other words, uh, there were rent-seekers in SAA, it got it got ridiculous to the extent that uh, Dudumieni tried to bring in a non-existent financial services company to remake a deal with uh, Airbus so that they could rake off hundreds of millions of rands. That was blocked at the last minute. But what you're up against is to try and get this out of the system. Explain where the intention comes from and the progress you've made. Yes, Alec, look, BE adds layer upon layer upon layer of structural cost to doing business in South Africa. Uh, largely in the private sector, people, profit-minded people, uh, you know, value-adding-minded uh, people try to minimize that. But in the state sector, in the procurement sector, um, the, the discipline of the market isn't there. And we see um, that we see the, the great excesses of BE right there in procurement in the public sector. 
Uh, now, BE is a, a phenomenon we're familiar with uh, in its in its in its uh, legislative phase. We've known it for about 20 years now since uh, it was promulgated in 2004, uh, but it, it hasn't always been the same BE. I mean, even the BE we had in the 90s, a sort of voluntary phase, then you had the early legislative phase, and then you saw things being ramped up. And one of the significant step changes uh, was in 2017, when then Minister of Finance, Pravin Gordon, uh, and, uh, promulgated new regulations. And those regulations um, changed a very fundamental thing. Before those regulations, you could lose up to 10 to 20 percent of your tender points if you're not, you know, if you didn't score well on black economic empowerment. But after the 2017 regulations, you could be shown the door if you were not 100 percent black owned. And the regulations made that possible. The 2017 regulations under Finance Minister Pravin Gordon caused this thing to spiral out of control. And that's what we then took to court. Um, and, uh, and this is where we are today. It's, it's basically that fundamental question. Okay, there's a phase in BEA where you can lose points. Um, and then you can still consider competition and effectiveness and, and reliability. You can, you, you can still trade things off. But then after 2017, there was this absolute exclusion um, of companies if they didn't uh, satisfy some race criteria. It's so interesting uh, that it is completely race-based and completely focused towards state procurement being allocated to one sector of the population. Uh, it is justified on historical grounds. Are you taking that into account at all when launching uh, the, the series of court cases, which you've won every one so far? Yeah, if we take into account, and we do, and if we take into account, as one should, um, the um, what you could call the initial aims of BEE, some of the aims, which was uh, the very aims why people, many people, business people today are very critical of BEE, supported BEE, or, or try to implement some form of it. It is the, the idea that there should be a normal society, a society uh, that does not uh, allocate tenders and business and government privileges according to race, but normalizes things. And the ultimate um, beneficiary we should always keep in mind is the general population. Um, and especially, if still, if we consider it in race terms, given the country and the community we are in, then we must also say the ultimate aim of a tender, of any tender, of any business, is to serve the end user. That's the ultimate measure by which we should judge a tender. Does it serve the end user? But what a BE has become, it's judging the person who's going to profit from the business. It's, it's been, and, and that's going to lead to higher cost and lower value. Um, and uh, it's, it's basically a, a privatization of taxes in a sense. You funnel taxes that could have been used to lower costs and services to the end user, which is what progress and empowerment is all about, uh, to uh, a few people and make them rich. So we do take it into account, and precisely because we do, amongst other things, uh, th that forms part of our conviction for why we're going to scale up our BU litigation efforts and our strategy uh, to turn this around. The country must must turn BE around. We've done quite a lot of uh, coverage recently on the whole CADA deployment issue because I guess the one hand, uh, it, it, it fits very comfortably with BEE. You deploy a CADA into the business community uh, because you need to have 
BEE points. And David Shapiro made this, uh, this point on the program last night when he said that what, is, what appears to have happened is not only are the cadres deployed into the public sector, but even in the private sector as well. Is this something that, that, you, that becomes part of your whole legal uh, uh, suit or are your members not really that interested about that side of it yet they just want to get the BEE sorted? Look, BEE, um, if we take Minister Rob Davies, um, in, um, a few years ago, he defined BEE as the, uh, the, the policy uh, to change the ownership and management of the economy according to demographic um, proportions, uh, on race-based proportions. That's his, that's his definition, and I think that's a very accurate definition in terms of how BEE rolls out in practice. Um, that's the, the ultimate uh, yardstick by which people who say there isn't enough BE, they, they look at the, at the ownership and management patterns and then they say, say that doesn't reflect demographics, therefore we need BE. I say no, what you should look at is the, the outcome. But, uh, but regardless of, of that, I mean, the, 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 what we've seen with BE is that um, the first you had this deployment of cadres into the state-owned enterprises. But BE uh, also sort of puts onto many private companies' boards our man from Pretoria. Um, and that man from Pretoria, mm. I think, inhibits uh, proper business decisions uh, and proper discussions in an open and frank way. Now, I must be clear, uh, Alec, and I know this, is, this might be taken for granted, but let me state this openly. Naturally, there are in every company very uh, profitable and valuable business uh, propositions and uh, cooperation between black and white in any race group. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the artificial situation by which political allocation of capital is being uh, seeked instead of entrepreneurial allocation. There's only one outcome. Just to close off on this side, with your court cases, what are you actually hoping to achieve? Uh, and then the second point is uh, just, just explain again to us why the EFF are a friend of the court on your side in this action. All right. So let me take the, the first thing. BE is part, of the, the, uh, is part of the public mindset in South Africa. Generally and increasingly critically so, that's very good. But still, BE is now part of the legislative quagmire we find ourselves in. So it's not so easy to go for the heart of BE, just get it cancelled and, and, and do something else. Unfortunately, we'll have to do this layer by layer. And so that's our litigation strategy, is to find the sharp edges of BE where it is most harmful and uh, attack those uh, in the public interest. Um, the, the most recent developments in the last three or four years is where we see a shift from the uh, BE used to be about the involvement or the relationship between the state and private entities. But BE is now, and that was a vertical relationship, but BE is now morphing into a horizontal relationship. It's infringing um, and setting requirements for professional conduct, for company-to-company -company, uh, transactions. And so it's more and more moving away from your relationship with the state and uh, moving right into private, commercial, and professional transactions. So um, we'll, of course, I think we have to litigate from the outside in. Um, and so we'll start with this, these latest, most harmful iterations. So it's like a layer uh, of an onion. You're going to be peeling yes. it off and you're not going to stop. And your, your members are happy to fund this? Our members are funding us. We're very happy. We have about uh, 12,000 members um, across the country in different sectors. Uh, and and they, they fund everything we do. It's a, it's a, uh, we're a public interest nonprofit organization. And our purpose is to create a sense uh, of, uh, 
environment conducive to business in the public interest. Everything we do, we measure by that standard, and we're very grateful for, for people who support that. Now, um, the litigation we do, I mean, this will cost us in excess of, uh, it's going to cost us a million or two, just this case. So the other five cases we're currently considering, multiply that by another million or two, so we can always do with more support. Uh, but it has to be done. Uh, like We have to turn the tide on BE. If we don't, um, I don't see uh, there's, there's just so much um, this country can be, so much that can be done, but it's not being done, um, and we're going right on the wrong way with BE. Pit, and, and with the public sentiment turning, I mm. think it's the time to step on it now. Let's just leave the EFF out of it. You have explained that they came in for political reasons. Stephen, uh, as our uh, guest co-host tonight, you got any thoughts on this whole subject while Pete's with us? Uh, yes, um, lots of lots lots of thoughts. I mean, I think that you know the bottom line, and Pete touched on this, is for the government to define the outcome. You know, you know. So, 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 so clearly, we know that the outcome in in broad terms is a much more inclusive economy, uh, and 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 I think the vast majority of people would support that wholeheartedly, but. But in order to have an outcome, you can't have a vague and a general outcome. You need to be much more specific. And the government needs to quantify exactly, you know, what are the outcomes they are trying to achieve and also by when? Or is this just an open-ended ever, you know, that it continues for one year or for 100 years? Um, And without doing that and without measuring the results, so what are the results of government tenders in this area? You know, so we have no data to work with. And I think there's just a lot of frustration and there's the perception that, uh, you know, the benefit uh, or the cost far outweighs the benefit, and not only to business in general, but also we're not creating uh, uh, enough black entrepreneurs because it seems to be tender, uh, tenderpreneurs and, you know, fronting in this way. And just, you know, one thing, Alec, it reminds me of listening to this is back in 2005, uh, when I was in my investment banking days, we had a mandate uh, to help one of the state-owned enterprises to articulate their financial strategy uh, because of the concerns that they weren't commercial enough. Uh, and I was actually leading that project. And I asked the CEO one question. And I said, what is your what is your target return on equity or return on invested capital? And this is one of the biggest state-owned enterpre- uh, ent- entities in South Africa. And they couldn't answer that. They couldn't say it's X percentage. You know, normally you'd say, you know, we look for a return of one or two percent above the risk-free rate, and you know, if the risk-free with government bonds are eight percent, we look for a ten percent return. And they couldn't, they couldn't answer that simple question. And they went on to say, well, you know, the shareholder being the state uh, gives us many uh, targets. We've got to have, you know, employment, and we've got to get uh, affirmative action and employment equity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the problem being is, unless you define these things properly, uh, you, you know, we're going to be chasing our tails for many years to come, and it's going to cause a lot of frustration, and we are going to underachieve our long-term growth rate. Something that you mentioned a moment ago, Pitt, and uh, just kind of as a parting shot, uh, that this is a a good time. The timing is right now to address this issue. Malaysia had their Bumaputra, which is their BEE, which they have unwound uh, because it was a failure. You would have thought South Africa followed a lot of what Malaysia did, particularly in the early days uh, of democracy, maybe that's something that we might learn from. Yeah, I'm afraid South Africa seems to stick to um, things that have proven failures. BE is one of them. But why I say the tide is turning is, um, I mean, just a week or two ago, you had Tuli Manonsela at the Daily Gordimer reading saying BE was a failure. Um, you even have people like Sandile Zungu, who's the president of the Black Business Council, writing 
uh, I mean, of course, in defense of BEE, but still admitting that it's a failure. So even the proponents of BEE today admit uh, that it's a failure. And I think it's in this episode, of course, that um, not everybody agrees on why it's a failure. Fundamentally, it's a failure because it's the uh, political allocation of capital instead of entrepreneurial allocation. That's why it's failing and why it will continue to fail. But during this time of huge skepticism of BEE, of state capture, it's the time to step on the gas and show why it isn't working. And just to, to refer to what Stephen said, I mean, sunset clauses, this has to come to an end. Um, even if it was a success, um, we know it's a failure, but even there has to be a conception of when is a success and end. And um, in the Mbeki era, you had the uh, panel on growth that he appointed under the ASGISA framework. Um, that was led by Ricardo Hausman, Darna Simoglu, and others. And there are papers available on Treasury's website today where these uh, notable economists of you know, Nobel, uh, Nobel Prize caliber are saying that there should be a sunset clause to BE, where they're calling it uh, at risk of becoming an open-ended tax on capital. That's where we are. We have to step on the gas. Pit Leroux from Saka Licha, and uh, he was uh, telling us about a continuous court case. Uh, they were in the Constitutional Court today. Simon Lincoln Reader joins us now from London, our popular columnist here at Biz News. And, uh, well, I suppose you've got very strong views as well on BE, but we won't be talking about that today. Uh, of much more interest is your latest column, which is uh, just going up to, onto Biz News in, in the next, uh, um, probably in the next hour, Simon, where you unpack conspiracy theories. And uh, one of the greatest protagonists of it, being Jacob Zuma, but I guess you, you have to excuse him because he's the man who says that Africa doesn't have a, uh, a, a very large river. Uh, and also um, all the other continents in the world would fit into Africa. So he's not the best read person uh, and, and the best example. But what are, <laughs> maybe if you can pick up from, from your column, what are the, the conspiracy theories that, that are the most outrageous that uh, you've seen from uh, Mr. J.G. Zuma? You know, I think you're quoting from the November 2015 speech, the night that he sacked Nkantanene. He went to the Santon Convention Center where he kept guests waiting up to two hours. Patrice Motsepe was there. And apparently, from what I hear, Patrice Motsepe had his head in his hands as Jacob Zuma was talking. He also said something about Paul being African from Sudan. You remember? Uh, uh, Saul of Paul. Well, it, it was a beaut, Simon, because the SABC was summonsed by the presidency at that stage to record this. So we were able to get hold of a recording. No one had really seen it until uh, a couple of days later we were tipped off on this and then ran the transcript, which is still on business. It is horrific. But anyway, that was the guy who used to re lead the country, fortunately not there anymore. Yeah, I think, look, when, when, when certainly when people started noticing it, and, you know, uh, he, he, he was a, an extraordinary man, and I don't mean that in any complimentary sense, but, you know, you had these, uh, these love affairs, you had in Kandla, you had this, this chaos surrounding a man, and conspiracy theories were never a, a great feature of his until he went to Russia in 2014 uh, to be treated for, um, <laughs> for poisoning, allegedly at the hands of one of his wives. And, you know, it's funny to look at that moment now because he'd gone to America because he said that the Americans would poison him or they would they'd knock him off. But who are the people that do all the poisoning in the world? You know, who are the, who are the guys that are, 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 are launching chemical attacks on other people, like what happened in Britain uh, two years ago? But, um, yeah, I think it was then, and then it was 
as I, as I spoke uh, earlier about um, the Spiderweb, Project Spiderweb, which was obviously just designed to try and um, amplify the white monopoly capital narrative. Um, uh, and then, you know, now I think that this last gasp is uh, the idea that Leonard McCarthy was a CIA agent who had an Afrikaans handler, um, which which I think would be the first time in the history that a CIA uh, agent had a, had a, a local handler. You live next door to the Guptas, another one of your columns going back a few years. Uh, what do you make of uh, the, the story that's now emerged that the Guptas are responsible for 49 billion rands worth of contracts that were issued by the state? Were they that powerful? Yeah, I think they were. But I think also that we've always seen the Guptas exclusively through the lens of South Africa. And one of the mistakes that we've made is that we've, never incorporated their role in the wider world. These guys are working with some of the biggest crooks in India, um, some of the biggest crooks in Malaysia, and we didn't consider that. We thought that here was a, a group of guys that had come and opened a shoe shop in Kalani and had worked up to computers and they're selling grey merchandise on the Joburg market. Um, but, you know, they have been seen in the company of some of India's biggest um, money launderers people who have actually been uh, prosecuted and jailed for this. So I totally, I, I can absolutely understand that nothing could surprise me about, about these guys. As soon as, you know, they, they fled and they had obviously this network of, of contacts in, in the Middle East, um, you don't do that with a, with a little shoe shop in, in Kalani, Alec. But what about the role of Dubai? We now know they're sitting in Dubai. We even know what their house looks like. Uh, we know that Zuma's son, Duduzani, who's also uh, wanted uh, for some, well, the Zondo Commission would love to have an engagement with him. He's sitting with them in Dubai. Where's the role of Dubai in all of this? Surely at some point in time, if they want to be part of the global community, they're going to have to allow the extradition of these criminals. Yeah, I think for a few years now, and even supposedly clean organizations, if you recall, the International Cricket Council start, had an office there and, 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 and completely perverted the, 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 the game from those premises with the cooperation of the English, which should never be forgotten. Um, but Dubai has you know, overtaken, it, without question, the sleaze capital. You get your crypto uh, shysters are there, your foreign uh, exchange shysters are there, and nothing seems to be done about it. I mean, I, I think that there obviously is some sort of arrangement with the Emirati that, um, that allows this or, or casts a blind eye. They used to call Monaco a sunny place for shady people. Perhaps the uh, Monaco's moved over a little bit south. Yeah, quite possibly. In fact, yeah, sure. Just to close off with, I know you've written a lot about work. There was a, a fabulous editorial in the Wall Street Journal today by the editor at large uh, highlighting what's happening to Jews in America being attacked in the street uh, on the basis of what he says, uh, the, the, the spread of wokeism, uh, i.e. seeing the, the world through the prism of oppressors and oppressed. So now anybody who's Jewish... Uh, given what was happening in the Middle East, to suddenly become one of the oppressors. Uh, this is a very dangerous situation, uh, he says, Gerard ba uh, Baker, because it gives a, uh, anti-Semitism gives a very good uh, temperature gauge on the health or otherwise of society. 
Yes, Alec, I completely agree, and I commend the Wall Street Journal for uh, being one of the only um, media firms in the world to, to address this, everyone else, including the BBC. I mean, I don't know if you've heard about this, but the BBC has, as its Palestine expert, a woman who has previously uh, declared on Twitter that um, uh, Hitler was right, okay? And um, Seriously? You know, I, the BBC? Yeah, and investigation that's being launched and so on. But this is what has, this is the pervasive culture um, within uh, woke ideology. And I also blame to an extent corporates that have adopted the, the same ideology uh, because they're essentially allowing it to flourish. And this notion of exclusive injustice, and there are only a few people um, in the world that are allowed to, uh, to, to, to behave licensed to destroy um, you know, it's 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 really worrying what's happening in London. Um, someone sent me a message earlier, and there's a, a community centre in Leicester, which has been overtaken by school children, none over the age of 16. They're screaming and shouting, "Kill Zionism!" and "Allahu Akbar!" Um, and this is, um, yeah, very very worrying. And 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 to Jewish to the Jewish community who really endured uh, 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 um, the, the turmoil of the uh, Corbyn experiment. Um, the, the Jewish community are, are, are quite understandably worried. Simon Lincoln Reader, uh, you can pick up his latest uh, column on Biz News. It's, uh, well, as good as always. Uh, Simon is a satirist, so don't get a little bit too hot under the collar, but he certainly hits some very raw nerves from time to time. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, it's the top of the hour now, and that means it's time for our news headlines and our market report. Uh, Kicking off with uh, our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron, here's our flash briefing. ESCOM, the beleaguered South African state power utility, has reduced its debt by almost a fifth. This is after repaying maturing loans and benefiting from a more favourable exchange rate. Public Enterprises Minister Proven Gordon says the debt was slashed by about 83 billion rand at the end of March. Professional services firm McKinsey, which played a central role in state capture and corruption in the Jacob Zuma era, has repaid 870 million rand to parastatal Transnet. The figure includes fees paid to McKinsey in respect of the projects undertaken with regiments capital and includes interest. The South African Reserve Bank is studying the benefits of issuing a digital currency for general retail purposes. It says a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, is a form of electronic cash linked to the sovereign currency on a one-to-one basis, with its value protected by the central bank's monetary policy and inflation-targeting regime. The Opposition Democratic Alliance has launched a petition against the Firearms Control Amendment Bill, which proposes a ban on firearm ownership for self-defense. It says we must protect gun ownership for self-defense as it is the last line of defense for millions of South Africans. The DA notes that just by walking in the streets, South Africans are exposed to dangers similar to those faced by people in some war-torn countries. ABSA, Investec and the Development Bank of Southern Africa have indicated that they could support a bid by a Turkish company to supply emergency power to South Africa. The inclusion of Car Powership, a unit of the Karadena's Energy Group, on the list of preferred suppliers has attracted criticism because it would lock the country into the use of a fossil fuel for two decades. Car Powership's contract has been further imperiled by a legal challenge from DNG Energy, 
that may be heard in mid-July at the earliest. And that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit biznewsradio.com. And time now for our market update, uh, which is with Nadia Swart. But before we bring Nadia in, let's hear from our sponsor. Bradrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs match life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, Bradrock, Bradrock is very well known down your part of the world, uh, Nadia, or your new part of the world, which is Cape Town. But what have the markets been doing today? Sorry, Nadia, my mistake. A little finger trouble here in uh, in Santon. Let's try that one again. Okay. All right. Okay. The JC Allshare Index was flat today at 66,077 points. Career was up by 5.8% to 513 rand per share. Old Mutual was up by 5.7% to 13 rand 65%. Ooh, sorry, cents per share. Montauk Renewables was down by 3.5% to 135 Rand per share, and Sabanya Stillwater was down by 2.5% to 61 Rand per share. In the currency markets, the Rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 13 Rand 86 to the dollar, 19 Rand 59 to the pound, and 16 Rand 97 to the euro. Gold is higher at $1,893 an ounce. Brent crude is steady at $68.64 a barrel. And the premium cryptocurrency will put you back 529,000 rand a Bitcoin. 529,000 rand. Now, Stephen, Nathan, let's talk a little bit about the uh, these cryptocurrencies because we have China who's saying we're not interested. We're going to be making, we're not interested in the private cryptos. We're going to be bringing our own cryptocurrency uh, with the RMB. We have the uh, Jay Powell in the United States saying that the Fed will have its own cryptocurrency in 2023. And now, as we heard from Jackie, uh, the South African Reserve Bank is also working on having its own cryptocurrency. If that happens, why, if you can use cryptocurrencies that are issued by the reserve or the central banks of these countries, why would you need Bitcoin and others? Yes, I guess, Alec, the question is why, why do you need cryptocurrency in the first place? What, you know, what exactly is it? Is it, is it, is it a method of payment? Uh, is it, you know, is it an alternative to a currency? Because, uh, you know, one of the views why crypto was started was because you can't trust governments that print money. It's politically motivated. You know, we want to have more control uh, over our money and have the government less, inter- you know, interfere less. So is it a, is it a method of exchange? And the answer to that is probably not because it's too volatile. So you have to have a stable currency because as I think it was written, I'm not sure if I picked it up on business, uh, you know, a Tesla costing you, if you're going to exchange it for a Tesla and you've only got a third of a Tesla in three days time, it can't be a method of exchange. Um, is it used for speculative purposes? Then clearly or investment stroke speculative purposes, you know, what is the core function? And I think, you know, what is incredibly impressive about crypto is the underlying blockchain technology. The technology is immensely uh, valuable and, and really clever and has a long way to go. And I think I've mentioned it before, and it has the potential to, to really disrupt financial services and disrupt 
a lot of the way that we transact and we store data and we have verifications and passports and all these sort of things. So the technology has got a long way to go. But the, but the actual use of crypto uh, as a currency, uh, I think, is really in debate. And certainly what governments won't allow is they won't allow uh, governments won't allow themselves to lose control over the currency. Once you lose control over the currency, you, you lose control over your tax base, you lose control over your ability to influence monetary policy, and they're never going to allow that. So one of the concerns with crypto is that when it ever gets big enough and mainstream enough, governments are going to take it over because you know it can't fall out of the tax net uh, or out of their fiscal uh, and monetary control. And that's, I think, why you're seeing these governments react to say, well, actually, you know, if you want this cryptocurrency, we can do as good a job ourselves and we will retain it. And, you know, we make the rules and the law so we can take it over at any time. So it's very concerning if you are a, a, an investor stroke speculator in crypto. I would be very concerned about the long term viability. That's not to say it, it, you can make a lot of money or lose a lot of money in the intervening period, but governments aren't going to lose control over the currency, uh, crypto or otherwise. And it, it is rational if you unpack it. Uh, that the current structure of cryptocurrencies, they're untraceable, they are they have no boundaries. You can buy a Bitcoin in South Africa at 520-odd thousand rand, as, uh, as Nadia said, not 900,000, which you would have paid a month ago. And you can go to the UK and trans- translate that into uh, British pounds at the ruling rate at, uh, on that side of the ocean. Nobody knows, uh, none of the authorities know what's happening. And of course, if you are using it for illicit uh, uh, proceeds or proceeds of crime, nobody knows that either. And that's what the, uh, the certainly the uh, authorities in the United States and the UK have gone very strongly on record as saying. But I guess the big story here is that the, at last, the central banks are saying we haven't been sitting on our hands as far as this move towards crypto is concerned. We too are going to be bringing something. Uh, but exactly as you've said now, we've got the law book on our side. So, so to buy a cryptocurrency in this kind of environment, man, you've got to be looking, you've got to be uh, looking somewhere where maybe the benefit doesn't exist. So I think ultimately, you know, the question with crypto is what is it used for? You know, what is the what is the purpose of crypto? And as I say, it it can't be too many things. It's either going to be as a method, as an alternative to currency. Why do we use currency? We use currency as a store of value, so we can measure our currency and you know uh, uh, measure our financial wealth, bank deposits, etc. Uh, always a mechanism to transact, uh, or thirdly, as a some kind of investment type type thing. You know, it can't be much more than that. And the government can do that as well as anyone else. And even I'm not even sure what, you know, the, the fact that the government is going to launch a currency, what are they, what's it going to be used for? Um, so, you know, I think it's a bit like the government saying, well, you know, we can also play this game. It's not that hard a game for us to play. So we can also play the game. And as I say, we control the final outcome anyway. So I would, you know, I would, I would certainly be cautious as, a, as, a, as an investor stroke speculator in crypto. Having a look at the market today, something else Nadia mentioned was that Old Mutual picked up 5.5%. I have no idea uh, what the news flow was or would this perhaps have been an uptick based on uh, the very strong results that we saw coming out of Coronation Fund managers today? Uh, Hard hard to tell because Old Mutual did give an update uh, uh, recently, and there was nothing particularly exciting in uh, 
in the update. Um, but you're right to say that, uh, you know, coronation, very strong results following 91's very strong results, which is really as an asset manager, you know, when the market is incredibly strong, you, you effectively a leveraged play on that because your revenues grow at this really fast rate and your revenues grow much faster than your costs. And Old Mutual being a life insurance company, uh, their biggest single driver is the underlying investment markets. So, so you know, when investment markets are strong, you should be a leveraged, a geared play. So if the markets go up by 10%, your revenue sh- should go up by at least 10% uh, and your cost should go up by a smaller amount. So you are a leveraged play on financial markets. Uh, also, as we've spoken about previously, you know, Old Mutual has been a big laggard. And it is trading at quite a large discount to its, its 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 embedded value, which is its own estimate of its net worth. So, you know, it is a value play and it has lagged the markets. So I don't think it's that surprising that it could have, you know, a large jump given that uh, the markets have run and it's been one of the laggards. But I'm not aware of any company-specific news there. And what you saw coming out of Coronation today, did that surprise you? Uh no, it didn't surprise because, as I said, you know, we've seen, we've seen, you know, we know what the markets have done, um, and um, you know, if you look at Coronation, their their assets over the, uh, I think it's over the uh, the six months were up eleven percent. So the assets are now six hundred and twenty nine billion rand. That's a that's an enormous amount. Uh, their revenues have gone up by more. Their revenues have gone up by twenty three percent. As I say, it's a leverage play uh, on the financial market, so you tend to do a little bit better. So their revenues are up by twenty three percent. Their costs are up by 15%, which is a big number for costs to be up, I think, in this kind of environment. But it's still quite a bit less than 23%. So what that means is that the, their profits have actually grown by 44% because of the, the operational uh, gearing. So, you know, really strong set of results from uh, Coronation. Not to be – it's not unexpected. I guess what is the concerning uh, issue for Coronation, and we also saw this with 91 is that while their assets are up quite strongly, uh, up 11%, uh, that's because of market movements. They actually had what's called net cash outflows. So they actually had more clients redeem assets than actually bought new assets in. So the actual uh, organic or underlying growth in the business was negative uh, negative 4%. So negative 4%, just to put that in numbers, is $24 billion. Uh, was the was the net cash outflows? There are a lot of asset managers that actually wish they had 24 billion of assets under management. So you know it's not an insignificant number. And I think that's a little bit of an under worrying trend for these asset managers. As I said, we saw that with 91 across all of uh, 91's businesses uh, in South Africa and also internationally, there were net ash, there were net cash outflows. So you know that money probably going into into index funds. Um, but there is a little bit of a concern that if there aren't strong markets then the underlying organic growth of someone like Coronation is not looking great at the moment. Stephen Nathan, the founder of 10X and before that uh, top-rated analyst on the JSE. This Daily Market Report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs mesh life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, I had a very interesting conversation uh, earlier this week with Hilton Kellner, the chief executive of Discovery South Africa and also the CEO of Discovery Bank. At the end of it, I decided that I wanted to open an account at Discovery Bank. Uh, Let's just listen in on a little part of the clip. The idea is once you've heard this, go on to biznewsradio.com on Spotify or on Apple iTunes and you can hear the whole interview, which, by the way, has uh, caused quite a lot of interest amongst the business community. It's our top red story today. 
Hilton Kellner is the chief executive of Discovery in South Africa. Clearly, a group like Discovery wouldn't go into banking without um, checking the I's and dotting the T's long beforehand. But what I'm uh, really keen to talk about you to, with you today is the whole uh, word of mouth um, uh, policy or strategy that you are adopting. Where does this come from, this idea of uh, allowing friends or when you refer friends to get a reward for it It actually comes from our clients as do so many of our sort of innovations and ideas that we have within the group and it emanates from the fact that we just received a lot of feedback from our clients that they that they are promoting the bank actively to their sort of networks and their client their their friends and their family um and and they should be rewarded for it in a sense and a lot a lot of it was tongue-in-cheek but it got us thinking. And, you know, if you think about globally today, digital businesses, organizations that have really powerful technology platforms uh, are being grown by their, their own sort of networks. And we've always seen our clients as our greatest ambassadors, really the advocates that we want for our products. And so bringing it all together, we realized that we, we really had a phenomenal opportunity to do something different. I've noticed that in South Africa, the other company that's had success in this regard is Easy Equities, where they say 60% of their new clients come from referrals. What kind of numbers are you seeing at the moment? Because you don't really associate love of a company with a bank. The sort of the, the initial response has been, has been quite remarkable. Um, in the first seven days, we've seen our clients send out over 100,000 uh, referrals to their contacts, their networks. And, and so, so, you know, the traction has far exceeded any, any expectations that we've had going into this. It's really, really been, been pleasing to see. I think that the, the sort of the analogies are, are not dissimilar, but, but I, I think what maybe differentiates our proposition is that, you know, we have a few existing assets that really lend themselves to this kind of, this kind of movement and this kind of strategy. Um, one of which is our discovery miles, which is our own rewards currency. So our clients are able to effectively give miles to to their friends and their family and earn the same amount in return when they join the bank. So what is the incentive? So the incentive is pretty simple. You can effectively gift up to 5,000 discovery miles, which is equivalent in cash to at least 500 rand, but depending where you use it, often up to um, amounts which are, which are much greater. And that's what the new joiner receives. And the referrer, the existing client, receives the same amount. Quite a valuable reward that's, uh, that's being generated. And, and it really reflects our belief that, that our clients are going to bring the same kind of quality clients into the bankers they currently represent. So let me understand that. If I decide to ask a friend or suggest to a friend that they join me in a Discovery Bank account and I gift them 10,000 Discovery miles for argument's sake, 1,000 rand, uh, would I automatically also get 10,000 uh, 10, Discovery miles when they do join? The limit is uh, is up to five thousand. It's not unlimited, and they, and you can only effectively um, get paid once per client. So so there are some limits in place, but effectively, as soon as somebody becomes a client, they can then uh, onward refer as well. That's quite a powerful mechanism that's been that's been created. There's a 12J investment opportunity to buy into the Pearl Valley Hotel by Mantis. Uh, we have a webinar tomorrow. It's uh, Wednesday, the 26th of May at noon. Uh, if you'd like to attend the webinar, it's open to all. Go on to biznews.com and on the home page, you will see where you can register 
for free. Uh, this is one of the most popular 12J investment opportunities. And if, uh, you, if this is all new to you, it is a tax incentive which is ending at the end of June. National Treasury says it was too good uh, for those who were investing in it. But the end of the uh, – well, it, as it runs until the end of June, you can still invest in these 12J companies. And uh, whatever you put into them, because of the tax incentive, you write off against your taxable income. So effectively what happens is the tax man pays, if you're in the top bracket, 45% of what your investment is. Well, uh, that's tomorrow at noon uh, looking at uh, the Pearl Valley Hotel. Right now, though, we are looking at Paul O'Sullivan, who's joined us in our virtual studio. Paul, uh, it's been a busy day on the on the whole crime and punishment area, not a heck of a lot of punishment going on, but certainly uh, Dudu Mieni, who you have crossed swords with, who you have exposed, uh, was supposed to be in the uh, Zondo Commission today, and she never pitched. Uh, I guess this would not have surprised uh, the the founder of Forensics for Justice. Well, you know, I think it's it's common knowledge that I started. On Dudu Mayeni, I think I sent her an email in November 2014 where I warned her that she was going onto my radar screen. And we opened the first docket against her in March 2015, the second in January 2016, and the third in March 2016. So it's three criminal dockets, and all of them are still awaiting prosecution. So there are issues on that front. But if, if you look at Dudu Mayeni's background, I mean, her son, he's now in his early 20s, he's an extremely wealthy boy. And um, none of my children have that sort of money at that age. And I think it's due to the fact that, you know, he's got a, a very uh, well-connected mother and father. Um, so I think, you know, this, this handing out of cash to people who have done nothing to earn it it's starting to come to an end now. And, of course, the other news in today has been the, the payments, the alleged payments to Sisi uh, Kodwa. Now, I need to mention that uh, EOH were on our radar screen as far back as 2017. In fact, I met with the head of forensics at EOH um, at the um, Certified Fraud Examiners Conference in Johannesburg in September 2017, and I handed him a bundle of documents and said, you better have a look at what's going on inside EOH because there's massive corruption going on. And a few weeks later, um, a sentence announcement came out a week after the fact. They're supposed to do it pretty much on the same day, a week after the fact that um, Mrs. Mackay and King dumped 200 million rands worth of um, EOH shares and they alleged that they were forced to sell them because they pledged the shares uh, for, 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 for loans that they'd made but I think that whole thing uh, really should have been properly scrutinised That's interesting Paul, so essentially what happened was you, you approached them, you gave them the documentation to say you guys are in trouble, you better sort this out, uh, this is before Stephen von Koller presumably, before he went to EOH Yes, in fact um, we met with the then CEO of EOH at the Grace Hotel in Rosebank on the top floor. They've got a little swimming pool deck there. We met there and had a cup of tea. 
And I was quite robust with him. And I said to him, look, you're, you're in charge of a company which is involved in massive corruption. And I pointed out a couple of examples. And the one example I pointed out was the, um, the relationship they had with a company that they'd purchased called FDA, which was swinging money at um, then Chief of Police Komotso Paklani in return for soft contracts worth hundreds of millions of rand uh, in the police. Um, and, of course, it subsequently came out that they were involved in other uh, wicked deals with the police. And, in fact, they were involved in evergreen co- what we call evergreen contracts with uh, the police as well. And those contracts today are still being fought over because they unpurchased the acquisition of FDA, which was Keith Keating's company. And Keith Keating had to pay them back 389 million rand which was the 50% purchase price they paid up front. And I pointed out to them that if Keith Keating paid them back any money, he was paying them with the proceeds of crime. And I sent a very stinging uh, email uh, to Sinead Mayet. I think it's Mayet. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But I sent a very strong email to him. They then appointed, uh, in fact, it was him that appointed ENS, not Stephen Collar. Uh, he appointed ENS and said, you know, he promised to get to the bottom of it. And uh, I think a month or two after that, um, he was gone and, and Stephen Collar came in. It's an interesting case. But I, I guess uh, what we, members of the public and investors, and remembering that EOH was a darling on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange for a long time, uh, would love to know is where does this all end? Here you've got a clear case of insider trading, 200 million rand, uh, that I think John King was the former financial director of EOH. We know where the share price is today, and yet there's no prosecution. Uh, in that case, we then hear, as you said earlier, Dudumieni, she doesn't pitch up to the Zondo Commission. Uh, today, McKinsey has finally settled with Transnet, paying them sorry, 870 million rand because of the shenanigans that went on there. That adds to uh, another billion rand that uh, McKinsey paid Eskom. And uh, the, the guy who came out here at the time, Kevin Sneeder, who was their senior partner, it was his first international trip. Uh, to to admit to their Eskom nonsense, said, no, that was it. That was all they were exposed to. Now they've paid another 870. But I guess the question to you, Paul, is where does it all end? Are we going to see an Operation Car Wash type situation in South Africa where it goes on for years and we see dozens and dozens of people landing up in jail? Or are our courts so overburdened that that'll never happen? Well, I think that we had this discussion before, Alec, and I said that what they have to do is they have to go for the low-hanging fruit. Now, if somebody's involved in a corrupt relationship for a number of years, in theory, you can have a charge sheet that looks like a telephone book. And I'm not talking about the, the yellow pages. I'm talking about the big, fat telephone book. Now, um, it's, it's not a great idea to prosecute somebody on several thousand charges. So what they should do is pick five to ten crisp clean charges where payments have been made. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think Mr. Mackey has got some explaining to do because after making those uh, alleged payments to Zizi Cogler, um, you know, things started bubbling out of the woodwork. 
we submitted everything that we did at that stage to various journalists. Some of it was covered, some of it wasn't. But the bottom line is that him and uh, John King, who, by the way, I forget which one of them it was, but one of them was a director of FDA, the company of Keith Keating, with Keith Keating. And when I pointed all this out to them, they unbundled the acquisition of FDA. In other words, get away, you know, we don't want any more to do with that. But the, the, the deeds were done. The crimes were committed while they owned FDA. And then, uh, lo and behold, they dumped just under 200 million rands worth of shares uh, on the proposition that they were forced to do so because the shares had been given as uh, security for loans that they'd taken out. Stephen Nathan, that's an interesting point because there was a buyer of those shares. Somebody did not have the information that King and uh, McKay had They've bought 200 million rands worth of shares. Clearly, uh, there's a misrepresentation of some sort towards them. What happens if, let's just say, you were running uh, money for, uh, for clients at that stage and you were the purchaser of that stock? Is there any uh, – can you sue them? Can you sue the JSE? Is there anything you can do about that? Well, I don't think you could sue the JSE. No, but let's um, Stephen. I just want Stephen because he, yeah, he's well, from think, that industry. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I think, you know, the first issue is, as Paul said, is, you know, if, 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 if you, have, you have told the company, officials of that company who are, you know, uh, fiduciaries or responsible uh, individuals, then, you know, then they have to report that if it's serious enough, which clearly this is, uh, and it's credible enough, they have to report that within their own governance structures and to the board. Uh, and then if it's and if the board deems it serious enough, which clearly it is, or it appears to be, uh, you know, then they would have to issue a um, an announcement to to alert to shareholders that there is some some you know some investigation underway, and under no circumstances should uh, executives of that company be allowed to trade uh, within that. So it it appears that that process wasn't followed. Is that they traded and 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 the actual uh, ramifications seem to have been uh, not followed within or the due process not followed within the company. Now, as an investor, uh, EOH is a listed company on the JSC, uh, and you could, you know, the JSC surveillance department and the uh, FSCA uh, who regulates market conduct, you know, it's up to them to investigate this. And if they've missed it, then certainly as an aggrieved party, you would have the right to alert them to this. Um, you know, th- those were the channels that you would have to uh, you would have to follow, but you, one would hope that the the regulators in this company, in this in this country, as I say, being the JSC and the FSCA, would take this very seriously uh, and follow this up. And I think that's you know, that's the frustration on the part of investors and the public is that it just there, there's so many instances uh, of these uh, alleged transgressions and people profiteering one way or the other without any recourse whatsoever. Paul, yeah, well, I think we can actually. Um, I said to an email to um, uh, EOH on the 8th of January 2018, uh, setting out the the true course of events when it became apparent. I can't remember who it was, but somebody said uh, we'd been threatening EOH. Well, I suppose we had been threatening them. I'd been asking them to come clean. And we talked about this so-called involuntary dealing and I set out in, 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 in a fair amount of detail with dates involved as well. Um, the course of events, and I noted, and I'll just run through it with you very quickly, and you can work out for yourself whether or not the sellers of those shares were being above board. 
On the 19th of September, we met with the then head of... Paul, Forensics. sorry, we, we've just about got to the end. We've, we're going to run this on business, so it's easy enough to go through it. But quite clearly, uh, the, the, your, your case is very well made, as it always is. And thanks again for being with us this evening and for, for sharing that information. Also, thanks to guest co-host Stephen Nathan and uh, for everybody else who participated in this program, including our team, of course, here at Biz News, uh, coming to you from the Biz News studio in Johannesburg. It uh, is my duty then just to say thank you uh, for, for being with us tonight and to remember that you can get a recording of this program on uh, Biz News Radio, on Spotify or iTunes, or you can listen on biznewsradio.com at 7 in the morning or 7 in the evening uh, to the full recording. Until the next time, from our team here, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.